They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. It's such an honor to be up here. And, you know, when we gather for church, this is this is a, a serious occasion. It is a sacred occasion it ought, and it ought to be treated as such. And yet sometimes I just think Christians need to be reminded, like, this is also really fun. Like we are so blessed to get to be Christians. I love getting to be your pastor and getting to prepare to preach God's word and to deliver it to you. Um, let, let's not forget to have fun. You know, this past week I was in uh, Washington, D.C. for a series of meetings and was at the Museum of the Bible for the first time. Perhaps some of you have gotten to, to visit that, that museum. And it was a fresh reminder to me of how much of a miracle it is that each of you has access to the entire Bible in your heart language sitting on your lap or, or on your phone. Uh, there's one room you can go in uh, at Museum of the Bible, which gives a visible display of the work of translation. And you have um, basically imagine imagine being in a, a 360 degree library, each with a thin uh, the shelves lined with these thin volumes and each volume represents a people group, an ethnolinguistic group about 3,600 of them, I think, worldwide. But the room is divided into different colored sections. There's, there's one section for the people groups that have a full Bible translated in their language. And then there's another 
section with a different color of, of groups that have just a New Testament translated in their language. And then a big section of groups where the new, the work of New Testament translation has begun, but it, but it has not been completed. And then a very somber and sad section of people groups for whom there is not yet access to the living words of God. It is an embarrassment of riches for us here in America that we have these English Bibles and that through them we can access the revealed mind and will of God. Your Bible is like an all-access pass into the revealed mind and will of the God who loves you. So let's turn together to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, the passage that Jewel just read, uh, this is uh, the the earliest of all the four Gospels. Uh, I, I've said that at, at, on a few occasions during this series. Uh, Mark was not one of Jesus's disciples, but he was a close associate and friend of Peter. And so Mark is giving us in many ways the, the memoirs of Peter, this, this eyewitness account of the life and ministry and ultimately the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The roughly 20 verses we're going to look at this morning cover a single day in the life of Jesus. If you've ever wondered what a just day in the life is, here you go. All the scenes are taking place within one 24-hour period. And in this montage, the, the main features of Jesus's ministry emerge. Teaching, casting out demons, healing, and each of them displaying his unparalleled power. Three points that I want to think with you about this morning that arise, I think, out of the structure of this passage. First, the king's authority. We'll see that in verses 21 to 28. Second, the king's tenderness. We'll see that in verses 29 to 34. And finally, the king's agenda. It's verses 35 to 39. The king's authority, the king's tenderness, and the king's agenda. First, the king's authority. In verse 21, we're introduced to a town called Capernaum, which will uh, inhabit at other points at Mark's gospel because it's where Jesus was. It's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. This was a fishing village that uh, was situated right along the shoreline of the Lake of Galilee. And in the town, there was a local synagogue, the ruins of which, partially, you can still visit today. I've, I've seen them. And in our story, it's just another Saturday. It's another ordinary Jewish Sabbath in this fishing village of Capernaum. Ordinary, that is, until a new rabbi stands up in the synagogue and starts speaking. Verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The point is not that Jesus was the first smart, compelling communicator they'd ever heard. I mean, I'm sure the typical roster of teachers in the temple was a group of Impressive men who knew their stuff. These were trained scholars, experts in the various schools of interpretation as it pertained to God's law. So it's not that Jesus is the first person to ever step into this synagogue and turn a phrase or make a point. But he did offer something brand new. 
See, the teaching of Jesus was utterly different than the teaching of all the other teachers because it wasn't dependent on prior sources. See, everyone else's, their lessons, their lessons were heavily footnoted as a way to establish their own credibility. Don't take my word for it. These these scholars and sources and ancient traditions said it, and I'm quoting them and building on what they said. Not Jesus. He has the audacity. This man with an unimpressive pedigree, a Nazarene, has the audacity to stand up in their synagogue and stand on his own two feet. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am no mere second-hander. My authority, unlike everyone else's, my authority is not derivative. It's divine. Before we proceed, I, I just want you to note that of all the sensational stuff we're going to see in this day in the life of Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, it was his teaching that they sensed authority in. Isn't that interesting? It was his teaching where the authority resided and was recognized. Oh, RCBC, let's never become a church that is more wowed and more enamored by spectacle than by divine speech. Let's never grow so familiar with the words of Jesus, so used to the words of Jesus that we just start to kind of yawn at them, grow bored with them, begin looking for more entertaining alternatives. If you're a guest with us, it's important for you to know that the way we structure our service is not accidental. That the reason we have built our entire worship service around the Word of God, structured around the Word of God, saturated with the Word of God, is because we believe that's where God's power uniquely resides. It's not in our ingenuity, in our creative ideas as hip church planters. It's in the pages of this book. So Jesus here is, is teaching with unique authority. And it provokes a reaction. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is not the first spirit that we've encountered in chapter 1, is it? Remember the baptism of Jesus. But just as the Holy Spirit descended to anoint and empower Jesus, so this unclean spirit has come. Not from heaven, he's, he's come from hell, as it were, to defile and to dominate this man in the synagogue. And notice where he is. I think this is so interesting. He's not loitering outside the synagogue, waiting for the, the, the worship services to, uh, to dismiss in order to attack the people. No, he's inside. 
I mean, maybe this is some kind of ominous flashback to the original unclean spirit and unwelcome intruder. Satan in the Garden of Eden. And sure enough, Jesus here does what Adam in the Garden failed to do and what later the priests in Israel, as they were meant to guard the temple, what they too failed to do, and that is to expel, to banish the unwelcome, unclean intruders from their midst. There's actually a good deal of historical evidence that demonism was rampant in the Roman Empire, which may be why Mark, who, if you remember, is writing mainly to Romans, features this as Christ's first miracle. From the very outset, it's as if Mark is wanting to say to his Roman readers, if Jesus has power in this realm, he has power in any realm. What's also interesting about this encounter is is Jesus doesn't initiate it. He gets interrupted. Because it's not just people, human beings in the synagogue who were hearing and sensing unprecedented authority. It was also the satanic powers. The crowds didn't know Jesus' true identity. The disciples didn't know Jesus' true identity. But this demon did. What he hears, what this demon hears in the sound of this new Galilean accent is the sound of a clock ticking. He hears the sound of a new king on the scene, bringing a new regime which will spell the death of everything that opposes this kingdom. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness will not overcome it. But it won't be for lack of trying. The other interesting thing I think about this encounter, uh, in addition to the fact that Jesus doesn't initiate it, is that the demon doesn't do what we would expect if we were writing the story. If we were writing the story, we would have the demon scream out and curse Jesus. But he doesn't. In fact, he says, you're the Holy One of God. Of course, he's saying this as a statement of recognition, not of worship. But it's worth just pausing briefly to to note that right theology, though it's very important, and we do take it seriously here at RCBC, it is not enough. You can know 10,000 truths about God and it may just get you to the level of a demon. As the Apostle James puts it, James 2.19, you believe there's one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Friends, the ultimate question is not are you conversant with all the right doctrines? That's important. But the more important question is, do you cherish and adore the God they reveal? Well, how does Jesus respond to this demon's question? Verse 25. Be quiet, 
said Jesus sternly. That, that word, sternly, is a strong word. This is the same word that is going to be used when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves to calm the storm. Be quiet. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Now, surely some of you read passages like this and they make you uncomfortable. You, you, you read a passage like this and you and, and they provoke fear. You think, I mean, could this happen to me? This guy wasn't in some random place. He was in a synagogue. Could, could this happen to me? Could I be overtaken suddenly and possessed by a demon? Well, it's a good question. It's an understandable question. But the clear and resounding answer from the, the whole witness of the New Testament is no. No. If you are safe in Christ. A, a believer can be tempted by a demon but not indwelt by one. And you know why you can't be indwelt by one? Because there's no room. There's already someone else, another resident, who's living inside of your heart, the omnipotent Holy Spirit of God. So if you're a believer in Christ, united to Him, hidden in Him, you are safe. You are safe from this threat. But if you're outside of Christ, if you're perhaps a, a skeptic of this story, Christianity, I want to challenge you on a couple of levels. First of all, you might, when you hear a story like this, feel kind of a, a an automatic, reflexive, mental defense mechanism activate, which says... This is ludicrous. This is like ancient science fiction. This is, this is primitive. This is unscientific. This is laughable. But just note that this actually isn't the way Hollywood or some ancient theater company, I guess. This isn't the way that they would feature this story if they were making it up. Mark is not sensationalizing the narrative. The exorcism, if you noticed, is itself almost kind of mentioned in passing. It's not a long ordeal. It doesn't leave the person damaged. So you can't just fairly dismiss this as some piece of, you know, some first century attempt at science fiction. The very starkness of the scene and the bare simplicity of the details, the bare simplicity of the description has the ring of historical reality. But on a deeper level, friend, if, if you're outside of Christ, if your faith is not in Him, then you need to know that you are not yet safe. The most important thing you could hear today is that. The most loving thing I could tell you is that. Now, sure, you may never experience demon possession, but demons aren't dumb. They don't, they're not one-dimensional figures. They, they don't only operate 
in a certain way. And in a sophisticated culture, they are going to act often in not overt, spooky ways, but in subtle, in sophisticated ways. In adversity, the satanic powers are going to tempt you to think there can't be a God. And in prosperity, they're going to tempt you to think, I don't need God. Friend, if you have not yet bowed your knee to King Jesus, if you are are building your life around other things, if you're kind of acting as the your own Lord and Savior, if you're not a Christian, then the, the lesson from this story is, is actually far worse than anything this guy was experiencing in the synagogue. Because your greatest enemy is actually not the devil. It's God. Now, don't mishear me. This is me not saying God doesn't love you. The, the whole reason we're here this morning is because this same God whom we have offended and whom we are set in opposition to because of our sin, this same God has invaded history in the person of Jesus to make a way for us to be brought back to him. But it's still the case that if Paul in Romans 8 can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? That it's also true that if God is against you, who can be for you? If you're not a Christian, you don't need to be so much worried about the demon. You need to think about how you can get right with your maker. And the way that will happen is by simply putting your trust in the life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your place for your sins. And in a moment, you can be made right with a holy God. You can do it before you leave today. I would love to talk with you about that after the door, uh, at the door after the service. And Virtually anyone in this room would also love to talk with you about the greatest news you will ever hear. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on a con- kind of a congregational level, beloved, I, if we're doing things well at RCBC, that one sign is that the demonic powers in Richmond will take notice. And what I'm saying is, is not sensation. It's not meant to be sensationalized language. You know, it's, it's just, I'm simply saying, if we are doing things well, they will be busy trying to thwart our, our mission, our efforts to derail us and distract us and discourage us. And that's why, among other reasons, we need Sundays. We need this weekly opportunity to huddle and together to peel our eyes away from the things of earth and fix them again on the things above. That's why we need each other Monday to Saturday to advance together in the Christian life because RCBC is a battalion in the most important war in the history of the world. What's going on with Russia and Ukraine matters. It's tragic. It's horrifically sad. 
but it's not the most important war going on. And certainly not the war between Fox News and MSNBC. No, according to Paul, the ultimate combat, the ultimate conflict, Ephesians 6.12, is this. Our struggle, that is the church's struggle, is not against flesh and blood. Not against humans, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, RCBC, together, we've got to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. This is why we take our church covenant and membership seriously at RCBC because it's not because we just can't get over ourselves. It, no, it's actually because not because we think we're so strong and so great. It's precisely because we know we're so weak. We understand ourselves to be responsible as a church, not just for our own safety on the battlefield, our own well-being in this war, but for one another's. Meaningful church membership. There's obviously much I could say about it, but I'll just, I'll just limit myself to say that in light of a passage like this, as we think about congregational application, what is meaningful church membership but an ongoing collective counterstrike against the gates of hell? That's what we get to do together. And of course, our king has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it the king's authority. Number two, the king's tenderness. Verse 29, as soon as they left the, the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. All right, so this the scene has shifted. Uh, we've, we've left the synagogue and we're now in Simon Peter's home. And his wife's Mom is laid up with a fever. Now, this was not a, a minor problem that could be solved with a little Advil. Fever was actually the leading cause of death in the ancient world. We, we don't know exactly the type of fever. Perhaps it was malaria or something, but, but this was a emergency situation. It was deadly serious. Verse 31, so Jesus went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Have you noticed just the abrupt change of mood? I mean, as, we, as we've moved from the showdown in the synagogue to this bedside scene. Jesus has just shouted down and cast out a demon in a violent encounter, and now he's kneeling by a bed, taking a, a frail, older woman by the hand and lifting her up with the tenderest care. Perhaps my favorite sentence in our church's statement of faith is in the article titled, The Mediator. And it simply says this, quote, Jesus Christ unites in his person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. And as such, is qualified in every way to be our suitable 
compassionate and all-sufficient Savior. Sometimes he thunders with a word of power. Sometimes he speaks with a touch of love. So two different locations, two different emergencies, and two different approaches. This is why Jesus is the most compelling figure in human history, because he defies all our little boxes of expectations. He doesn't operate, notice, like we so often do, with with one speed and only one gear. And a lesson for us here is that we should be very careful not to assume that just because he's acted one way in one situation, that he's necessarily going to do the same thing in another situation for someone else. I I saw God work this way in so-and-so's life, so I know he's going to do this for you. Maybe, maybe not. But brother, sister, his purpose for you is specific and unique and good. So don't waste your time comparing yourself to others. Don't waste your time making appointments with Jesus on your calendar that he has not scheduled. Well, it's now dark. Nighttime. But Jesus isn't done. Verse 32, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. A few things to see here. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to belabor this, but I just want you to notice the clear distinction between verses, uh, or I'm sorry, the clear distinction that shows up in verse both verses 32 and 34. So this distinction shows up two times between being sick and being demon-possessed. They are not the same thing. Now, despite what you may have heard a false teacher say, the Bible does not attribute all illness to personal sin or to evil spirits. When Mark told us that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with fever, he identified a grand total of Zero spiritual causes. Don't trust someone who adds to the word of God. Another thing we have to just kind of recognize and and grapple with here is the oddness of Jesus' insistence that his identity remains secret. We're going to see this show up again in Mark. Back in verse 25, remember when the demon confessed, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus didn't say, Amen. Louder for those in the back. No, he said, be quiet. And again, here in verse 34, he silences the demons, not because their knowledge of him is wrong, but because it's right. What in the world? Like, why is, didn't Jesus come to reveal God? Didn't he come as the Messiah? Why is he concealing his identity? Well, it's because that revelation of who he is in the wrong context would actually have been counterproductive. It, it, would, have, it would have only confused and distracted. Because remember, 
the, the, the people were pining for a different kind of Messiah. They were longing for a military hero who would overthrow the shackles of Roman oppression. But Jesus is not here to be misunderstood. He's got a deeper plan. He's playing a longer game. The true nature, and this is what the crowds don't get, what his disciples won't get, the true nature of his identity cannot be understood apart from his obedient death. And that time has not yet come. And the last thing I just want to highlight here in, in, in reference to, to these verses is that it's not enough to just come to Jesus to get something that any person, even a non-Christian, would want. It's not enough to just come to Jesus to get something that any human being, even an unbeliever, would also want. Physical healing is wonderful. It wasn't wrong to come to Jesus for physical healing. He delighted to heal. It's wonderful, but it's not permanent and it's not ultimate. These people were crowding the door of Peter's house after hours because in the final analysis, they wanted a healer more than a savior. Now, how do I know that? Do I just say that because that sounds good to preach? No, I know that because the gospel according to Matthew tells us something about this particular fishing village. I want to show it to you real quick. Quickly, just flip back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. First book in the New Testament. Um, Look at Matthew 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Because... They did not repent. Now look at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you, so this is in reference to things like Mark 1, like what we're looking at. If the miracles that were performed in you, Capernaum, had been performed in Sodom, It, Sodom, would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Friend, what is it that intrigues you about Jesus? Why are you here? Is is there something you're, you're wanting from him? Are you looking for a religious spectacle, a spiritual experience? Are you looking to just kind of feel better about yourself? Or have you, unlike these people in Capernaum, have you come to the end of yourself and discovered your need for a Savior? But to be honest, I'm not even interested in psychoanalyzing you not you know, the you 90 minutes ago. It doesn't even really matter why you came 90 minutes ago. What matters is what is the condition of your heart right now? What will be the condition of your heart when you leave? Will you be walking out of here with what you think is just a fresh batch of religious goods and services to get you through another week? Or will you walk out of here with Christ 
as your king and your redeemer and your friend. With the demoniac, we saw the king's authority. With Peter's mother-in-law, we saw the king's tenderness. And as this 24-hour period draws to a close, we see the king's agenda. That's number three, and most briefly, the king's agenda. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I'll admit that I'll read verses like this, and I just kind of skim past them because I can forget to read in context sometimes. And so, you know, I can read a verse like this and forget what the day before had been like and how late he had been up. And it's also easy for these verses not to really affect us because we can have this kind of storyboard cut out idea of Jesus that he's just some uh, mythical Greek god, this cosmic cartoon Superman. But no, Jesus was exhausted. Exhausted. It's like Mark is saying, in light of these really powerful miracles, It's like Mark is saying, lest you think that I'm only revealing stories that demonstrate his deity, get a load of this. Verse 28, remember that? News about him is permeating the whole region. Verse 33, just hours before this, he had been sought and needed by, quote, a few people. No, (laughs) quote, the whole town. Verse 33 says, the man is spending himself for the good of others and yet is disciplined enough to get up in the quiet darkness before anything stirs to go find a place to derive fresh strength for his mission and fellowship with his father. Verse 35, he got up, left, went off, prayed. One verse, four verbs to emphasize this resolve. Now, there's important application here for our need to uh, be disciplined in our prayer lives and for us to rest and experience silence and solitude with the Lord. There's important application there. But what I want you to see this morning, more than anything else, is just how much Jesus loved and labored over these people. I mean, how how patient is he? Look how compassionate he is. He's willing to go to bed late and wake up early to make sure that he's both caring for people and communing with God. Beloved, if that's how he treats seas of strangers with physical ailments, Imagine how he must feel about you, who he holds in his very heart. The disciples respond the exact same way we would have. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they finally found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And and I can't blame them here. I mean, imagine having just witnessed such incredible power next to such a a vast sea of needs. I mean, talk about potential. I mean, they're, they're thinking, this is great. We are off to a good start. Things are taking off. 
Jesus, what are you doing out here? Don't you want to maximize your ministry? But Jesus, he, he isn't swept up in the local excitement. His priorities are anchored in heaven above. His agenda, as, we'll, as we see here and we'll see in the chapters to come, his agenda will not be determined by the disciples or the crowds or any other human court of opinion. Sure, Capernaum was bustling with excitement, but Jesus doesn't take his cues from popularity polls. So he replies in a startling way. Verse 38, it's not, good point, what am I doing? It's, it's not even, okay, I'm, I'm almost done here, then we'll return to Capernaum. No, it's, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. He's here to advance a kingdom beyond the borders of Capernaum and ultimately beyond the borders of Israel. And the tip of the spear in that kingdom advance will not be the healings or the exorcisms, but verse 38. The preaching. I'm just quoting Jesus. That is why I have come. In other words, don't reduce me to a miracle worker. I'm not here just to make people temporarily better. My ambitions are eternal. Well, as I conclude, we're, we're here this morning, as we are every Sunday, to celebrate the fact that Jesus didn't just come to heal with power or to teach with authority, but also to embody the very law he taught, to fulfill the very law he taught, and then to forgive those who have broken it. The story of the gospel is the story of the lawmaker who became the law keeper and then died for lawbreakers. That's what we're celebrating. It's why Capernaum's demons freaked out because they knew that this man, unlike all the other men, was no mere man. He was the Holy One of God and he had landed behind enemy lines to establish a beachhead and to raise heaven's flag. Have you come to destroy us? They cried out. The answer of the Bible is bingo. 1 John 3.8. It couldn't be any clearer. Quote, the reason the Son of God appeared. If you encounter a verse that starts like that, you should pay attention to what follows. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Have you come to destroy us? Yes. And that's why he would soon be hanging on three Roman nails and even there be laboring over those he loves. As it says in Colossians 2, on that cross he was disarming the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his 
cross. And if you're relying on him today in faith, then that triumph, that victory, that is his by right, is yours by gift. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for silencing and defeating in part in your first coming and in full when you return again. Our greatest foe, the devil. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to look as a church, to look for you, not to just get not just to look to get stuff from you. And we thank you, Lord, that you have authority, that you are tender. And that your agenda, though it is sometimes mysterious and befuddling to us, that it always operates in accordance with our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.